0: Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to another episode of the Adventures in Advising Podcast. Thank you for listening and supporting this podcast. Each episode, we strive to bring together the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and, of course, advising stories. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's the latest episode. And as always, keep advising.
1: Hello and welcome
0: to the fourth episode of Adventures in Advising of 2021. That was Colin Cronin and greetings and salutations. I'm Matt Markin and yep, episode four of the year, episode 29 overall, almost to episode 30. To kick off today's episode,
1: Matt and I spoke to Karen Lewis and Christopher Kirchhoff to find out more about Nakata's upcoming regional conferences and pre-conferences. <laughs>
0: Karen Lewis has over 22 years of experience in the field of academic advising. She currently serves as the Assistant Director of English Undergraduate Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. Prior to taking on this administrative role, she served as an academic advisor at University of Maryland University College, University of Maryland Baltimore County, Walden University, and University of Maryland College Park. She has been an ACADA member since 2002 and has held multiple leadership roles in the organization, including Maryland Liaison, Region Conference Co-Chair, Global Awards Chair, Region Chair, and Region Division Representative. Karen holds a Master of Arts in Education Policy, Planning, and Administration with a higher education emphasis from the University of Maryland College Park. Karen, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much.
0: And you're not alone here today. Joining us as well as Chris Kirchhoff, who serves as the Director of Transfer Student Services within the Swanson School of Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Chris currently serves on the Nakata Council as a Regional Division Representative, Previous, Chris held leadership positions in both the Regional and Advising Communities Division. Chris holds a bachelor's degree from Providence College in History and Secondary Education and a master's in education leadership from Central Connecticut State University. Chris, welcome as well to Adventures in Advising.
1: Thank you for having me. Exciting we're delighted to have the opportunity to chat to you both and uh, i think we're, we're, one of the things we're going to look to discuss is is around kind of the pre-conferences and the, the regional conferences and i suppose to me the first time i had come across a pre-conference was when i attended Nakata's international conference because it's not all the conferences certainly on, on this part of the world that have pre uh, you know pre-conferences and their sessions and I found it really useful. But can you talk to me maybe a little bit about, you know, the the benefits of pre conferences? Obviously, we're living in a time of COVID. um, It's going to to look a little bit different. So a little bit around that for this year.
2: Absolutely. So I think the main benefit of this pre-conference uh, format, which is a full week of pre-conferences, is that there is so much choice. You can There are 25 different pre-conference sessions to choose from, and you have the ability to attend as many as five throughout the week, whereas in an in-person format, uh, usually timing-wise, two is the most you can attend. Um The pre-conference week has been decoupled from the conferences themselves. So if for some reason you're unable to attend a conference, you can still attend pre-conference sessions. And uh, best of all, I think the week includes pre-conference sessions from all 10 regions. So you really have a chance to gain a broader perspective and perhaps hear some speakers that might be new to you.
0: Nice. And yeah, and like you're saying, that's something where in in in-person pre-conference sessions, it's only those that are attending that particular region. So this actually does give a lot of flexibility. And I guess with that, that probably also might give a variety of different types of topics for these pre-cons. So can you talk about the types of sessions that will be available for the pre-conferences? Sure. So
3: the the pre-cons are going to be a mix of two-hour sessions or three-hour sessions. So it really, really lets you dive into the material Uh, The general themes are going to be things that are timely to advisors like um, advisor self-care, different types of advising models. Um, Yeah, I I know of flipped advising and there's a a big push in like career and academic advising integration right now. Um, Assessment, um, there's a lot of sessions on diversity and inclusion and social justice practices um, in academic advising, which are going to be really important. Um, And there's also going to be for graduate students, a job search boot camp because we're getting into that time of year where Um, Graduate students are going to start to apply for maybe their first time uh, job in academic advising or academic affairs. So it's really important for them to get feedback on their own um, resumes or their own uh, job search. What should they be looking for? What should should they not be looking for? Um, But really, the the pre-cons in general let you dive into material in um, different ways than a regular uh, conference session. So it lets you um, come up with some sort of action plan or tangible takeaway from it.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of the, the pre con sessions is it is, it tends to be that kind of interactive and it get really the, the, get into the, 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 the nitty, midi- the nitty gritty of things. And I suppose I'm, I'm interested therefore how is that going to work in a, in a virtual environment and to, to make sure, I mean, that we, look, it all comes down to we got to feel that we're, we're getting value for attending. And the fact that like it is decoupled means people can attend, I suppose, how, but what, how will it work in, in this instance?
3: Well, it's a good question. And it's a question a lot of people are going to have because now that we're in this virtual setting, conferences are different. Um, The pre-conferences are capped based on the number of presenters. So it's not going to be a uh, Zoom Zoom room of 300 people. They're going to be small, um, around maybe 20 to 40 participants based on the number of presenters and each one is going to try to engage in a little bit of a different way. Obviously, delivery methods are going to be different, but um, in talking with the executive office, a lot of the uh, pre-conference presenters are going to be using Zoom rooms or poll- direct polling um, to help to guide these smaller conversations that you would typically get at an in-person conference um, so that attendees have these you know tangible takeaways or tangible networks that they're able to work with um, once they leave the session. So we're hoping for a very interactive experience um and making sure that uh the the presenters and the uh, pre-conference attendees are able to connect during that time
0: yeah it definitely seems like they'll be getting their money's worth for that and i guess leading to that is going to be how much are some of these costing like how much are the costs of the pre-con conference workshops as well as that's even the region conference costs and is there any deadlines that members should keep in mind
2: Yes, absolutely. So uh, in terms of pre-conferences, I do want to mention that the Job Search Bootcamp for Graduate Students is a free pre-conference. So if you're listening, please do sign up. Um, The other costs involved are for a two-hour pre-conference workshop. It's $20 if you are a current NACADA member, $40 if you are not a current NACADA member. The three-hour pre-conferences are $30 for members and $60 for non-members. The deadline to register for these pre-conferences is February 24th. So it's, it's coming up. So, Um, and for best consideration, you should register right away because as Chris mentioned, there are some caps and um, some of them are uh, some of the conferences are getting close to the cap. So if you want your first choice, get uh, get on there and register Um, the conferences themselves. uh, The deadline to register for those conferences varies by the date of the conference. So you'll need to check out the website to see uh, the deadlines for signing up. But in general, there is um, an early bird Rate So the early bird rate is $125 for members, $275 for non-members. And then one week prior to the conference, the cost increases and it becomes $225 for members and $375 for non-members. As always, there is a flat $100 rate for grad students and retirees.
1: Well, then it the, sounds like the membership will certainly pay off. So if, uh, if you're not already signed up for this year, definitely worth investing because it uh, sounds like it massively reduces some of the cost of attending the sessions. And as you've outlined, there, there are some really good sessions. So we've talked a little bit, uh, you know, there about about pre-cons and why people should look to get involved in terms of the, the region conferences then themselves. When are those taking place?
3: So they'll begin um, starting on March 10th. March 10th and 11th are going to be the Region 1 and 2 combined conferences. Um, And then after that, uh, Region 8 and 9 are going to be meeting on March 23rd and March 24th. Uh, Region 4 and Region 7 on March 29th and March 30th. Um, Getting into April, Region 3 and Region 5 meet April 7th and 8th. And then Region 6 and 10 will meet April 22nd and 23rd. And these were intentionally plotted out um, throughout the months of March and April because um, each um, office may have different busy times but also these are will vary between wednesday and thursday formats or monday and tuesday formats so if you're not a, if one week won't really work well for you based on your work schedule um there are going to be some different um other options obviously you might be very uh connected with your region and you want to make sure you attend your regions but any, members from any region can attend any of the regional conferences
0: All right. So now that we know when the conferences are, are there any highlights to entice people to register for these conferences?
2: Absolutely. I think anyone who's ever attended a conference has had that moment where there are two sessions you really want to attend and then you find out they're being offered at the same time. So then the best you can do is is look at the PowerPoint later or maybe get some handouts. Um, But you won't have that conundrum with these conferences because you're going to have full access to all of the sessions. So every conference during the two days of the conference, there'll be 30 live and semi-live sessions running on those days, plus an additional 30 plus pre-recorded on-demand sessions. So after the conference ends, you will have access to all 60 plus sessions for 45 additional days. So it's going to be possible to attend every single session if you would like to. Um, there's another fun little aspect to the app, the conference app, there's a built-in event game. So you can earn points for doing things throughout the conference, such as uh, attend a semi-live session or submit a session evaluation. And at the end of the conference, the person that has accrued the most points is going to receive a prize from the Nakata Executive Office.
1: I, I like the sound of, of prizes. It's always nice to have the opportunity to, to win something. I suppose I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the the benefits of of the region conferences in particular.
3: So the regional conferences are going to be different than the annual conference because the regional conferences are typically um, smaller. Um, You'll be uh, if you attend a regional conference within your region, you're going to be interacting with um, colleagues from neighboring universities In the virtual environment, we're really hoping that participants are able to connect with um, people within their states or Commonwealth districts or provinces, Um, but then also um, the the, the different members within their region um, through the regional uh, networking time and the uh, area meetup times. And hopefully being able to work in these geographic settings are going to um, be able to build a connection because there are sometimes things that are very unique to different um, states or commonwealths or different areas um, based on what is going on in the world. Um, And you see a, a close demographic of students, so you're able to network in that way. Uh, pretty well. And that's why I I know I like regional conferences, because I get to work with um, people who are geographically close and are able to share in some commonalities with the students that we work with.
0: Yeah. And then you also touched upon, Karen, with the types of sessions are on demand. Can you talk more a little bit about the different types of sessions that will be offered during the conference?
2: Yes. Uh, So if anyone had the opportunity to attend the virtual annual conference, the types of sessions that are being offered are exactly the same. There are going to be live sessions that are delivered right there in the moment. Um, Semi-live sessions, which consist of a pre recorded presentation followed by a 15 minute live question and answer period with the presenters, and then the on demand sessions that I mentioned. So these sessions are pre recorded prior to the event, and they'll be available to watch in the app as soon as the conference begins. And then all sessions will be available for 45 days after the conference.
1: Um, it's, it's great that, you know, to hear that it'll be available after the conference. I think that makes a a real difference to, to people. And I suppose, you know, I'm familiar with the international conference and the annual conference. And for many people, they're probably annual is, is something they, they mark on their calendar at the beginning of every year. But this year, with the fact that, you know, things are virtual and there is the opportunity to attend different regional conferences for people who are,
3: you know, maybe on the fence or unsure about what to do, any advice for, for those people? Well, I would say now is a really good time to get professional development um, because, Typically for a lot of institutions, um, summer will be busy with planning for the fall semester or the beginning of the semester or new students, and then you jump right into the fall semester. So the spring is typically a really good time if you are looking for um, changing up programs or modifying any existing programs to kind of push the button and say, um, we, we want to make these modifications. Um, and now I understand everyone's academic calendar is a little bit different. Um, I always tell my boss that an advisor's busy season is between January and December. Um, so you know, we're always busy. Um, but the, the regional conferences are going to give you a really low-cost um, opportunity for that professional development. And since there are five different regional conferences, you've got five different dates to choose from, With depending on what is going to work best for your calendar and your school's calendar. Um, and that if you are going to be overhauling anything, being mindful of this summer is going to be very busy for advisors. We're going to be focusing a lot on return to campus initiatives. So now is a good time to prepare for any other modifications that can help student development.
0: Yeah, it's all good points, but let's face it. You know, many of us are zoomed out. We are tired. We're Many of these conferences are going to be in in March, which will be a year since many of us went to working remote and being virtual and even though some of schools or institutions are might be back on campus and some type of hybrid model many schools are still remote just like where i work so what's your advice to anyone that is like well i may want to i want to attend this virtual conference but i'm tired of staring at my computer screen i'm zoomed out i've would really just want to be in person to to chat with with others and go to conference sessions what's your advice to why someone should be attending this conference
2: stay with us we'll be right back cracking the college admissions code just got easier i'm rebecca gordon your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game, wherever you podcast. I I feel that deeply because I end many days saying to myself, I am I am Zoomed out. Um, I would say, uh, as we've mentioned multiple times, you have 45 days to view all these sessions. So you really can take this conference at your own pace. You don't have to cram any everything into the 48 hours of the conference. I would say, please don't miss out on the live networking opportunities um, or the keynote addresses. But in terms of the sessions, you, you can take those at your own pace over a longer period of time. But also the most important thing I think about this conference is the accessibility. Members often ask how they can get involved in the association if they don't have the ability to travel out to conferences. And we often talk about this concept of Nakata at your desk, like what can you do for the association right from your desk? Uh, These conferences are Nakata at your desk in the truest sense of the word. We've never had an opportunity like this before to access all this professional development from from our desk. Um, You can access it from the comfort of your home or office without the time and expense that comes with travel. Um, and the registration rate is an incredible value for the sheer number of sessions you'll be able to access over such an extended period of time.
1: You've done a wonderful job, I think, of outlining what's going to be available and the benefits of participating. But for members maybe like me who are based around the world and might not be affiliated to any particular region, what about those, those members?
3: Is it still open to, to us to, to get involved? Absolutely, because you're going to have, at the very least, the 45 days of all of the different recorded sessions, Um, but then also we're trying to be as respectful as possible time zone-wise with some of the regional conferences to make sure that they are, um, at times, to hit the, the... the majority of members within those regions, um, but at the same time, everything's going to be recorded um, in the session. So you've got the 45 days, so you can really take a look at the website and look at some of the different topics or some of the interest areas that are really going to be impactful to you, um, and start to start to network and start to connect with the different advisors around the globe. I think this is a a wonderful opportunity for Nakata and for the regional conferences to um, really cast a wide net um, of advisors. So we're more than welcome to um, anyone from any of the different regions to cro- um, cross register, and it should be it should be very exciting for us. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean
0: Nakata is the global community, and it seems like through these region conferences, that is exactly what they're going to be doing with these. And as we wrap up this interview. What are you most excited about with either the virtual region conferences in general or maybe your specific region conference that you'll be attending?
3: I think for me, I'm excited... um... I, I, I don't want to speak for Karen, but when you get into a level of Nakata leadership, you go to a conference and you're stuck in meetings or you're networking with people and you don't feel that you're able to attend all the different sessions. And so I'm really looking forward to um, trying out some things in terms of some areas that maybe I wouldn't have gone to a session before, um, just because you're able to see so many of the the different sessions and really look at um some maybe different interest areas that you can bring into you professionally. Um, Karen?
2: I'm just excited about um, the ability to attend all these different sessions from from other regions. So um, Chris and I are both in Region 2, but we decided to attend a Region 4 conference last year, and it was... It was great. You know, like, I mean, we love our region, but like seeing seeing what other regions are doing and, and hearing about the issues that are affecting their their corner of the universe. Um, that was really educational. And uh, we were very lucky to have been given access to all of the conferences so we can attend all of the conferences. And I'm just really looking forward to seeing, you know, what other advisors around uh, uh, the world have to say.
3: And I would say also just seeing the fruits of the labor of the volunteer army, because there are some Mm -hmm. conference chairs who have been, um, this is a year and a half or two years in the making. Um, And so they've been working really hard. I mean, Karen and I are just here as representatives of them, but there are so many volunteers, conference chairs, um, and different chairs within the conferences that have been putting um, in so much work. So for those of you who um, will be attending these sessions, um, you're going to see them front and center, um, and make sure you give them a, a nice big thank you because they've been working so hard over the uh, over these difficult times to make sure that these are um, these conferences are executed pretty well.
2: Right. I mean, not to mention that I mean they initially went into their position planning an in-person conference, and then we had to flip everything on this. Uh, this is this is new and exciting for all of us, but it has been a lot of work for those volunteers. So definitely, hats off to them.
1: Absolutely, and uh, it's great to to, to see that the work I suppose coming to fruition. And I think thank you both for you know outlining um, what is coming up. It sounds like a real exciting array of events, and so uh, hopefully listeners will be able to take the opportunity to see what's coming up in their own region or cross regions and uh, sign up and uh, look to, to get involved. I do think it, it certainly provides an exciting opportunity so Karen, Chris, thank you both for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt today.
3: Thanks for having us.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much karen and chris for joining us and speaking about nakata pre-conference workshop week and the region conferences check the nakata website or your nakata emails for more info on the conferences and registering next up is kevin thomas from university of central arkansas and before we get to kevin let's give some shout outs and the source one goes out to kevin's son braden who we mentioned a few episodes ago is a listener of the podcast and probably one of our youngest listeners And Braden actually has his own podcast called Gaming Theories and News. He's already on episode 18, if you can believe it. You can find Gaming Theories and News on Spotify. What other shout outs do we have? Shout out to Student
1: Affairs in Higher Education, who listed Adventures in Advising as one of their favorite podcasts. And there's one more. Shout out to Andrea Harris. She was a big fan of our interview with Leah Frierson on the last episode. Now,
0: on to Kevin's interview. (music) Dr. Kevin Thomas is the Associate Vice President for Enrollment Management at the University of Central Arkansas. Kevin previously served as the Director of Retention and Student Success at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, where he led efforts that resulted in an increased retention rate over that time of 10%. From 2017 to 2019, Kevin taught an academic advising and student success course as part of the college student personnel program at SIUE. Prior to this, Kevin served as the director of the academic advising and retention center at Western Kentucky University. He has experience in housing and residence life at WKU Ball State and Murray State University. At UCA, Kevin establishes the collective vision and direction of the offices within enrollment management, which includes academic advising, admissions, transfer services, the registrar's office, student-athlete academic success, and financial aid. Within academic advising, he is currently overseeing a transition to primary role advisors serving the campus after many years of faculty and primary advisors serving in that role. He is also part of the transition to meta-majors for all incoming students at UCA. Within NACADA, Kevin has served as chair of the advising administration community, the chair of the 2017 annual conference in St. Louis, a mentor of the Emerging Leaders Program, and served on the board of directors. In 2018, Kevin was selected as an outstanding advising administrator within Nakata. In addition, he has presented at numerous campus, state, regional, and annual conferences on topics surrounding retention and student success, advising administration, and the culture of care in your leadership and campus approach. Kevin earned his doctorate in educational leadership from Western Kentucky University and his master's and bachelor's degrees from Murray State University. Kevin, welcome to the podcast.
4: Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to finally be with you all. I've been listening to the podcast for like a year now. And so now I'm here and I get to talk to you guys and and just share and talk about advising. It does it get any better.
2: Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby.
1: Well, it, get, it doesn't get better than your bio. I mean, that is pretty impressive and, and varied. So we are delighted to have the opportunity to, to talk to you. I suppose, Kevin, as you'll know from listening to the podcast, we like to open it up by talking to people about how they you know, found their way into higher ed. Was it something that you had, had wanted to do or something that you kind of stumbled into? So we'd be interested in hearing your story.
4: This is this moment, right, when I'm walking through campus listening to your podcast where I say, ah, their origin story, right? And I get so excited about this origin story that I hear from all of the, all of your guests. And so I get this moment. I feel like the Marvel music should come blaring through the background at me at this moment. But uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so I will say that I stumbled into higher education um, right out of my undergraduate degree. And, and as Matt mentioned, um, that started in housing and residence life. And I enjoyed my time in housing and residence life. I worked at Murray State as a hall director, worked at Ball State University as a hall director, and then moved to Western Kentucky, also working in housing. And uh, it was at that time I'd recently gotten married and we we're living in, in residence halls and debating the start of a family. And and my spouse said, you know what, if if we're going to continue to be married, we need to not do it in a residence hall. <laughs> and so that's when uh, there was a, there was quite the change in direction. And so uh, applied for some jobs inside and outside of higher education. And I look at this as that time where where my path could have gone multiple ways. Um, You know, I applied for a nonprofit working for the American Cancer Society, um, applied for a job in development and applied for a job uh, as assistant director of undergraduate advising practices at Western Kentucky University, where I was at already. And I got the interview and it was one of these things where I got the interview and said, what are they thinking? Like, why are they interviewing me? And I, I can remember, uh, the presentation I did was, um, advising today's college student. That was part of the interview process. And during the interview, I'm, I'm talking about the things that I think are beneficial to supporting students. And, uh, and at one point I said, well, I've never advised before. So I, I, I would just have to learn that skill set. That would be the area I'd have to grow. And, uh, my boss or my future boss comes to me after the interview is over and she says, hey, I want to tell you something. You did a great job. Absolutely fantastic job. But never, ever, ever say that you don't know how to advise. She said, you are an unbelievable advisor. Your passion, your love, your care for students, unbelievable advisor. Uh, she said, you just don't know the curriculum, curriculum yet. Uh, and, and that really like was that moment of like, oh, I know how to do this. I need to learn the curriculum. I have the care. I have the relational aspect. I have all the things that, that we look at and we say we want in our advisors. I just didn't have that curricular knowledge in what I was doing. And, and that's where I really feel like my, my passion and my work in higher education went from here's a job to here's a career. And so uh, I was at Western Kentucky for uh, several years as an assistant director. About four or five years in, um, I was promoted to director of the Academic Advising and Retention Center. Um, And in that time, I had opportunities to create a ton of things. Uh, Campus advising network, started a master advisor certificate program, um, worked in student retention for the first time and really understanding what student retention was, looking at cohort models and how students would come in and how universities are evaluated. Um, And really, those became some passion areas for me. Um, And at the same time was starting my doctorate. Uh, at, at, at Western Kentucky University in, in educational leadership. And, uh, you know, at that time, you look at the things that you're doing, and, and I did my dissertation on uh, student success programs and how they impacted retention work. And you look at what you're doing and you look at what's out there and, and, and knew that it was time to, to move on. Um, and so I, I was fortunate to get the job at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And, uh, and I can just say that that was a great move for, for, for me. Um, to work retention campus-wide, to do some really impactful things. When I got to SIUE, the first-year to second-year retention rate was 69%. When I left SIUE seven years later, it was 79%. And uh, and I can just say that we did some things as a team there, uh, from uh, more intrusive advising, more relational advising, um, to also just looking at the barriers and roadblocks that were in front of students when we were working with them that really uh, just left – uh, an opportunity to, to make a change and to change a campus for the, for, for the good. Uh, and, and, and I love my time at SIUE. Um, and, and so uh, you, you, then now at, at, at UCA, there uh, is an excellent opportunity to work within enrollment management. But I think the big part of that was that I was able to continue working within NACADA. And, and I say that in that uh, I skip through career-wise here and, and, and essentially... Uh, didn't touch on a lot of Nakata bases. My career in Nakata, I, I view these as almost parallel lines, um, my career line and then my Nakata experience. That very first conference I went to in Baltimore, Maryland, and going to that conference, and then now to have just finished a, a year on the board, um, those are, are those are tremendous opportunities. And so um, I remember looking at the job description for my, my job here at UCA and looking at it and saying, okay, well, is this for me? Does this allow me to continue to stay active in advising and do the work and, and, and that I really truly care about? And I remember looking through it and it said, preferred qualifications, experience in, and it listed a, pr- a bunch of professional organizations. And then it said NACADA. And I, did, I don't know how often you see that on job descriptions for associate vice president level positions. So often it's this requirement or that requirement, but that they want, they wanted somebody to a, have uh, a wealth of experience, passion, desire, and dedication to a professional organization. And to mention Nakata, I remember sharing it with my, 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 spouse and she says, this is, this is for you. Like they wrote this job description for you. And it's absolutely true. Um, so professionally, Um, My 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 worlds are are hand in hand as far as uh, how how I've been able to get things there. And as Matt said in my bio, um, the amount of opportunities and experience that I've been able to have in Nakata have just been unbelievable. Um, And and I'll say uh, that it started um, with going to that conference in Baltimore and it started with when I was going, my boss said, I want you to go and I want you to come back with a leadership position and us hosting a, a conference. And I kind of thought to myself, I I don't know how that's going to work, (laughs) you know. And so I remember going into that first uh, regional conference uh, uh, breakout meeting and uh, they said, OK, so we're looking for a representative from the state of Kentucky to be in region three. Anybody interested? And I raised my hand. And then the next thing after that, at the state meeting, they said, hey, we need Kentucky's host in the conference in 2010. Um, is anybody interested in, in hosting the conference? And I raised my hand. And that's how it all started. It really it was just quite that simple. And, uh, and 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 you know, sometimes it's just putting yourself out there that gets you there. And then the whirlwind of being involved in advising communities, part of two annual conferences, chairing an annual conference, being on the faculty for the Administrators Institute, being a part of the ELP program that Matt, I, the number of times that you've talked about that on the, the podcast and, and just how passionate you are about that work, I'm right there with you. It's a life changing experience. It absolutely is. Uh it, so that that that's really that's really my, my beginning and, and, and my through to this moment um, where I'm talking to you all about this career that I absolutely love and adore.
0: I think we're gonna to touch upon a lot of this kind of sprinkled throughout with this interview and I did have a question because How tough was it for a decision to leave Southern Illinois University to go to UCA? Because, I mean, this is a place that you spent like seven years from. This was like a home for you. And now to change institutions, change states. What was that like?
4: Yeah, it, it's not an easy decision. I mean, it, it really isn't. I will say that so aspirationally, and, and this is for anybody listening, right, that wants to hire people later in life. Aspirationally, I would like to be a university president someday. That's the goal. And I don't hide from that goal. Um, you know, I put it out there because I think it's good to have those goals and share those goals with individuals. But that, that's what I put out there, and uh, and so that's that's the aspiration. So I know that in order for me to get to that goal, I have to put myself out there and and also maybe step into some situations that make me move outside my comfort zone. We'd had a lot of success in the things that we did at SIUE as a team, and and I say. Uh, quite often that advising and the work that we did within advising was a huge reason for that success. But it's one of those things in order to um, move up in the administrative ladder. Sometimes you also have to move out uh, of your comfort zone and the institutions that you love. And those are sometimes really hard decisions to make. I will say that sometimes it feels like fate in a job search. Um, Going to SIUE and leaving Western Kentucky, it kind of felt like fate in um, that I finished my doctorate and then I got a random message that allowed me to live closer to family um, and, and move to SIUE, which is just right outside of St. Louis. Um, and then with this one, there's some mixing of, of, of my worlds here, but I was at a conference that wasn't a Nakata conference presenting with my ELP mentee about the nuts and bolts of advising. It was uh, Cindy Firestein, who is my ELP mentee and I, I love and adore. And we were talking about uh, this this subject and we had a number of people with us on the panel. And so we're at this conference and we're presenting on advising to provosts and associate provosts and presidents that are in the crowd. And we're going through it and we're talking about everything that you do on your campuses and things that they should consider. And after the session was over, uh, a, a woman comes up to me and says, hey, I'd like to talk to you about your approach to advising and your philosophy on things. And I said, okay. And she introduced herself and she said, I'm the provost at the University of Central Arkansas. Let me ask you these questions. And so I hear these questions. I answer these questions. And she said, those are good answers. Can I talk to you about a job? <laughs> and, and so we talk about this job opportunity that's there. And, uh, and that's, as, that's, that's how it kind of happened. And it felt like it was just meant to be. It felt like it was purposeful. Um, I can say, people say, well, what does your future bring? Where, where are you going to go next? I don't know that I would have said I was going to move to Arkansas, right? I I don't, right? I'd never been to Arkansas, but I didn't know that I was going to move um, from Illinois to Kentucky in my life and spend so much time in Kentucky um, to go back to Illinois, now to to Arkansas. Sometimes the opportunity just presents itself. And uh, when you look at that opportunity that's there, um, you just have to grasp that at that moment and and, and hold on and just get ready for the adventure. Um, But it was a difficult move. Um, but I, I think that we're all forced to make a lot of difficult moves and hope for the best. I, you know, I, can, I, I can say I don't think that when we thought this move was occurring, that there would be a period of time that we'd all be working remote and we'd have COVID that we were dealing with and working within. And, and so, you know, it's just I, I think sometimes you have to roll with the best that you can see in front of you. And, and I knew with the leadership that I saw from the provost in the interview process and, and my interactions with the president in that process, this was the right place to be. The right place to be for leadership, the right place to be to grow and the right place to be to be able to move forward. I love the the serendipity
1: in that. But I'm I'm not surprised that, you know, somebody saw you speak about students and advising and said, yeah, that's the guy we want to hire. I I could absolutely 100 percent understand that. And I suppose, you know, kind of building building on that in ways, but by taking you back uh, about over a decade, um, you gave a presentation as far as I, I know in, in 2009 um, who are today's college students answers to help you advise and I I'm, I'm interested just uh, you know as you know somebody who is clearly passionate about advising and about students do you think today's college students a decade on are are different from the way things were in in, in students in 2009 and and you know how, how, how do you think advising has changed if it has?
4: Yeah, I, I think that students are different. And honestly, Tom, if you would to asked this question two years ago, I, I think my answer would have been different. Um, because I think we've learned so much over the last 11 months, 12 months uh, since the pandemic hit us. And, and, and I really do think that has probably framed some of my thoughts on where we're, where we're at and where we've been. Um, to where I think we're, we're going. I think that I would have said 12 years ago that while there was a growing online presence um, in, in, in the educational platform, I don't know that I would have said that students may have a strong preference for it. Now where we're at, I think some students do have a strong preference for that online learning environment. I still think they like the college experience to be face-to-face and they like the ability to, to navigate more, but I think that there is some adjustment to online aspects of, of, of who college students are today that is always going to be there now, um, that, that that's not going to change, where before I think that face-to-face was a much preferred method. When we talk about that from an advising standpoint, I think that what advising looks like to, in the future versus what it looks like uh, right now versus what it looked like a year ago or 10 years ago is going to be drastically different. One of the things that uh, I'm fortunate to talk to talk about at the administ- uh, Administrator's Institute is that we're going to talk about what advising looks like after the pandemic is over. And there's a session that we're talking about that. You know, a lot of campuses are really going to be able to look at the advising position and say, what makes most sense? What makes the most sense to your campus? And it and, and may not be necessarily be a blank canvas in which an artist is really able to just draw and do what they want, but it it may, be, may look way different now than what it used to. Um, I know we're having conversations on my campus that are we really going to look at uh, more of a virtual option uh, on on a half time basis, right? So really the advisors maybe work 20 hours in an office and 20 hours remote, because I can tell you that since uh, we moved to this environment, our no-shows are down in pretty drastic numbers, right? Because students are being met where, where where they're at. All of a sudden they don't have to come to the office. They're not forgetting about it or they're not choosing to go to lunch with their friends over going to the advising appointment. So I think there is some drastic changes that are coming, um, and I think there's a change in who the students are, but in the end, I think the the one the one thing that has stayed the same is that the col- our colleges are bringing on students that want to succeed and realize that college is that path to help them get there. Um, no matter what student comes to our campus, they view that end goal as being a an important part of of the journey. And uh, today's college students or yesterday's college students, it's the same thing. They're coming, they're spending uh, a significant financial investment to be on our campuses. And, and in the end, they're coming so that they can have a better life, a better job, um, a better salary, a career with potential and not just one that uh, is one that gives them a paycheck. And so I think that that is the, uh, the same thing that all college students are really looking for, whether that was in 2009 or whether that is today.
0: It's funny because we actually just had that discussion in our office about our our appointments, no-shows being down. And you know, students can be on their laptop or on their iPad. They can be on their phone for their appointment. They can call in through Zoom for their appointment. So they don't necessarily have to have the face-to-face or have the, the Zoom camera on. And we've talked about how it's, it's so different where when we're on campus, students might show up late or they forgot or they got out of class late. And so they have to rush to their appointment. And now they they seem to have a little bit more time, but there's still going to be some of those students where, you know, now they have more things that they have to do in terms of work or helping their siblings out with their school and juggling a lot. How has UCA been helping helping students during this time? And I guess, how is UCA right now with classes? Is, is it hybrid? Is it on campus? Is it virtual?
4: Yeah. So uh, I, I'm i in my office now, which I think as mm-hmm. I've hopped on to Zoom calls throughout the, the globe over the last year i feel like uh from august on i've been one of the few people that have been in an office um but i we've been in, in an office um environment since first week of august and uh and really our fall looked similar to what i would say a lot of campuses looked where um it was a lot of online but 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 a higher percentage of hybrid than i think some some campuses might have had um and that's continued on through um, through the spring, so we, we, we're again we're on campus. I would say we have more in person this spring semester than we have in the, than we did in the fall. Uh, but I would also say that um, there's still a lot of hybrid courses that are there. We have students living in our residence hall. Um, but as uh, Matt knows, because we had this conversation uh, during the fall semester, we've also done two in person commencement ceremonies. Um, since the the COVID outbreak. And there aren't that many campuses that can say that. We did a commencement in August um, for our May and summer graduates. And we did a commencement ceremony in December for our fall graduates. And uh, while I had some reservations about that occurring, I would say that our campus uh, put in appropriate social distancing measures, um, you know, used face coverings, uh, social distancing when needed, um, and, uh, and really did some impressive things to be able to have families celebrate what they did. So I'm incredibly proud of the work that UCA has done in, in that regard. Uh, there are absolutely things that um, I wish that we could change um, for how we're supporting our students. But really, most of those come down to experience. The things that we're seeing is that the learning in the classroom, our faculty are really doing an outstanding job um, in the hybrid uh, uh, approach uh, and in and, and the fully online approach. Um, but it's really hard to supplement the relational aspects of what students get out of the college experience and uh, and the things that I think that so many of us um, uh, that are listening probably look back on and say that was my college experience. Um, you know, uh, I, I I look back on it. I met my my wife during her freshman year of college. and so I look back on that now and I'm like, who who didn't get that opportunity to connect, right? Who missed those 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 those, those opportunities to connect outside of the classroom? Um, yeah, you know, I look at the programs that I used to attend, or you know, I'm a Murray State grad, so basketball season's always big on the Murray State campus, and I look at the fact that we you know did road trips with buddies to college games throughout the uh, the Kentucky and Tennessee and Missouri uh, region for 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 college basketball, and the fact that you didn't get those opportunities this year. Um, those are the things that I, that I look at and say, oh, students are really missing that to supplement what's going on inside the classroom um, experience. And so I'm proud of the work that we're doing at UCA. But uh, I look forward to the day, the day that we can celebrate the good that is coming, um, you know, with vaccines um, becoming more available, um, with vaccines uh, being more available globally. Um, I, I do look forward to that, that aspect of, of some normalcy returning to um, the world of education, and while we 'll learn from what we got during this last year, I think that there 's a lot of uh, 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 of positivity in also moving forward with what we need to do
1: yeah absolutely I, I think there will be many people nodding their heads uh, in along to what you just said, and as somebody who works primarily with international students for me, I feel that there's that extra burden for them that, that they're missing out on the university experience, but they're also missing out on the experience of exploring a, a new country. And I think wherever international students are, that they're they're finding that experience. And it's that relational piece as well, that, you know, you, you arrive in a new country, new continent, possibly new language. And and, and how do you begin to, to make friends? So there, there are definitely challenges there. And maybe that ties into um, an area, Kevin, that, um, you know, you, you have experts He's on You've, you spoke a little bit about it earlier, but in terms of retention, um, and you mentioned about like identifying roadblocks and, and barriers, um, and obviously that's a process. But can you talk a little bit about you know some of the roadblocks and barriers, and about for uh, you know advisors listening to it how they go about maybe setting up um, a, a system where they can identify and, and help to, to eliminate some of those barriers?
4: Yeah. The, the, the people that are the absolute best at figuring out where the barriers are at are typically those that work in advising. Uh, academic advisors know uh, the, the catalog and the curriculum so well uh, that when it comes down to it and you really want to know where the barriers are at, ask an advisor. Right, Talk to those folks and say, hey, where are the things that you look at and you're talking to students and you say, this doesn't make any sense at all, but we do it. And you've said that out loud to your supervisor, or your supervisor's supervisor, or four people that you've worked for in your life, and no one's done anything. What is that one thing that if we could go and change it right now, you think would make the most impact? And I can honestly say so many of the things, so many of the roadblocks, so many of the policy changes that, that I've been able to implement and work within a team to, to, to accomplish have come from that conversation, asking an advisor, what are the things that we need to do? Um, I would like at UCA, uh, I would say uh, within the first month we were sitting at our director's meeting and we were going through things. And, and finally, like it, like there's this fourth or fifth thing that came up that I was like, this makes zero sense. And I kept writing it down on my piece of paper. And finally I was like, okay, stop all of the things that like you're frustrated about and that you think don't make sense and that harm student success. Can we talk about those right now? And so all of a sudden, by the time we were done, we, we, we jotted down a list of, these registration holds don't make sense. This drop for non-payment doesn't make sense. Um, when we reg- have students register for classes, it doesn't make sense because we don't have enough time to follow up with them afterwards to try to get them into classes if they haven't already registered. And so you just start to go through policy after policy or practice after practice sometimes because sometimes that practice is actually the reason, not the policy. And you start to get those information or that information from directors, um, from advisors, from those frontline folks, and just ask. Just ask, what are those things? And it's amazing the work that you can do when you start with that simple approach. I I, yeah, I think back to uh, you know when I when I started at SIUE, there was an advisor that was down the hall from my office, and I would stop by, and he always said, well, "What if? What if we did this?" and uh, and and give a complete shout out because I know he listens to your podcast, Tyler Phelps. It's the director at EIU uh, in Illinois now, um, but he he. I would say, what if we did things this way? And, you know, and, and so you start to jot those things down and all of a sudden you start to change policies, you know, instead of necessarily maybe going from suspension or, or from uh, good standing to probation to, to suspension. What if we put in an academic warning into the into the process? What if students, when they fell to academic warning, there was a class for them and we started to do those things and they all really stemmed from what if thoughts Um, And and on what was there from a policy or practice standpoint um, that really allowed us to hammer away and start to support students. Um, Because when you look at retention, and this is one of these things I think people struggle with, retention is not necessarily focusing on 3,000 students or 2,000 students or 1,000 students and trying to change the behavior within that large group. It's looking at 20 students and saying, how can I do that? Uh, One of the reasons why I think we were so successful at SIUE is we changed the mindset of what retention looks like. Uh, We would bring in a healthy class of 2,000 students at that institution. And when you look at that and you say, okay, we want to impact retention by 2%, well, that's 40 students. And so all of a sudden, when you're going to talk to the RAs that are working in the residence halls, and you're able to say, you have the opportunity to impact student retention in your work. And they look at you and they say, well, well, how can I do that? And the answer is just quite simply impact one student's life, right? If you can impact one student's life and what you do as a student leader on this campus, you're impacting retention for the better. And then you can go talk to the advisors and you can say you're going to have advising appointments that they're going to finish and you're going to feel frustrated because you don't feel like you got through to the student. And, 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 and that's OK right we'll We'll figure out how to help that student, but that's okay that you have those. but realize if you're impacting one more student than you did a year ago, you're you're doing your job in, in in improving retention. You have that that power and and really being able to show them how their individual work was part of a greater system of success. Um, I really think that, that 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 struck a chord within the retention work that's there. Um, sometimes I think we deal in these these absolutes of we want to improve graduation rates and we want to improve retention rates. And then we just treat them as numbers. But when you're impacting a student life and you're able to really show that that, that impact is doing good for the overall goals of the institution, I think you can get some real buy in from the staff that you're working with and, and especially with advisors, um, because so many advisors start off with that care, that that heart that they have for, for their profession, and those are the, the folks that you don't really have to sell the impact one philosophy to, right? Like, th- those are the folks that are like, let me impact four or five. And it's like, yes, you can. And, and you're going to make up for the person that doesn't impact one that's that, that, that's in a different building. But impact one, right? You can do that. And advisors are, 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 are very gung-ho about that and, and on board for that kind of success.
0: But I guess, what about advisors that they've been, been at the institution for a while, maybe they started out with that caring aspect and maybe they become a little bit more desensitized. So, you know, usually there's a saying that like when you start a new job, the job is an extension of you, but at some point you become an extension of that job. And a lot of times you kind of mention graduation rates and some institutions, there is that push for increased graduation rates. And sometimes student success is defined as increased enrollment or graduation rates or the retention or something like that and or increased units registered per term per student or increased two and four year grad rates. So as, as advisors, you know, we take in the university regulations, we have to take in what the administration wants students to accomplish and when we have to take in the students needs, the student dreams, what the student the advisor plan out. But sometimes there might be some conflict in a sense in what the university wants or what the student wants. And the advisor is kind of in the middle to kind of navigate that. And sometimes they might feel like they are stuck there. So is there any advice that you have for advisors that might feel they're in those situations?
4: Yeah, that's a hard question, man. I feel like I've listened to like 25 episodes of your podcast, and that's like the hardest question that you've asked. Not not that
0: there's going to be a perfect answer, but I'm interested to know (laughs) what others think, especially those that are in those administration levels.
4: Yeah, so I, I mean, I'll just tell you about my approach, um, and, and 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 I think I'll touch on a lot of those points that are there. Uh, I, my leadership style is absolutely personal and relational. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's why this has been a really, really hard year for a lot of us. Um, outside of the things that are going on personally in our lives and, and around the globe, um, and, and and the tragedy that's absolutely there that's, that that's occurring in this world. Um, but when you look at it from your your, your professional experience, uh, I will say pre COVID, uh, I you know I saw my people in their offices. I would uh, go by and see advisors and financial aid counselors and the uh, recruiters here on campus, and really sit down and talk to them and just say, "How are things going?" I'm sorry that your college football team lost this weekend. You know, talk about their their alma maters, whatever it might be. But I really do get to know my entire team in a really personal way. Um, and I think that that approach has been helpful in the staff member that that gets to that point where they're almost burnt out mm-hmm. and where they just feel like um, they're in a job again and not necessarily in a profession or they're, they're in a job that they don't necessarily feel has the career growth that they wanted to have. And so I feel like getting to know the advisors um, as a supervisor and as an administrator Is a really important thing to do because I can't help you. I can't help motivate you and help drive you to your goals and aspirations if I don't know you. And so uh, those relational aspects of the work for me um, often help in the conversations that need to be had with somebody that that maybe is experiencing what you mentioned, Matt. Um, Because I will say, um, just like with students, when when as advisors we're talking to students and sometimes we see a path. For the student that isn't necessarily the best for the institution maybe you need to consider a transfer to a community college or if your passion is really this degree program and our institution doesn't have it and we've done everything we can to look at interdisciplinary degrees and integrative degrees and all the things that we can do it may be that another path is the best path for you at a, at a different institution the same is true for um, for, for advisors in their role and as a supervisor sometimes Uh, I feel like the the goal is to help strengthen your ability to be successful at the institution you're at, and and I'm all for how we do those things, but sometimes it's to be supportive in how we can help you grow by going someplace else. You asked about the transition earlier um, in moving from SIUE to UCA. Um, I will say that my boss didn't necessarily want me to go, and we had that conversation, but we also had conversations about why it was going to be good for my growth and development to do those things. And so I think when you're in those places, it's reevaluating um, what your, your your vision and your goals are for where you want to go. How can we reignite that passion that's there? And if we can't, how can we look at ways that you're going to find more value um, in your everyday environment? I think the thing that, that can happen in a job, and I know I've experienced it from time to time in a job, um, is that you get to these points where you say, uh, I I don't necessarily love my eight to four thirty job. Um, not that I think many of us work eight to four thirty hours anymore, but I, I don't necessarily love that eight to four thirty job. And so when that happens, you want people to have that value. You want people to have um, that pride in what they do. And so if you can figure out ways to 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 reignite that flame, I, I think that's the job of, of of an appropriate administrator. And I think those that really embrace the culture of care, not only with the students that are on their campus, but the, the, the faculty and the staff that they work with every day are those that are going to find answers to whatever the solutions are. And no matter where you're pulled on graduation rates and retention rates and um, assessment information that you, you may have to do, I think that if you get to know somebody, you can get to those underlying things that can build success uh, for them at your institution and the work that they're doing, uh, but also potentially for for future success Outside of the institution, for whatever's next.
1: Okay, I'm going to give you a bit of a blue sky thinking question. Then, kind of ta- building on you've you talked about leadership and, and you talked about vision and goals, and I, I love that earlier you talked about you know the aspiration to, to be a, a university president. If for for, for forget we've got a, we've got the perfect vaccine, we're living in a in a post COVID world. Uh, um, you're you're at the in an institution and you are the university president. Talk to me about that. what what is, what Kevin Thomas wants to bring to an institution
4: as a university president. Holy smokes, fellas. These are some next levels. I would like to say that before we started recording folks that Matt and Colin said, I'm not gonna ask you anything, you don't know how to answer. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. And I do find that there's irony here for those people that you're not gonna be able to see the video here. Column's asking this question, and Matt takes a drink of his coffee cup that says "There's trouble brewing," and and, and I feel like that was that question, the the the, the approach. Wow, Column, that's a great question.
1: I ask it with the because I'm genuinely interested in hearing how you how you would approach it, and and I recognize you know it is aspirational, it is totally blue sky, but I do think it would be interesting to to hear from you on that.
4: Well, and I think that some of it is, you know, when we look at it and we say aspirational and blue sky, there's always the things that when I look at that role and that position that are going to be areas where I'm going to have to grow, right? Um, you know, it, and let me use this example. I I am an incredibly passionate person about certain things uh, in in education. I'm fairly anti standardized tests. So for any of our College Board friends that are listening to this podcast. I, I, I'm 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 more test optional, right? I, I'm glad that you have the tests that need to be there, but when I look at those type of things, I I, I look at it and say, okay, is this is what is this providing our students, right? And and so I, I look at it from the standpoint of whatever we're doing, it should be for students. But I also realize that in a presidency position, there are a lot of varying a- a- avenues of that. So I, I, I the pie in the sky or the the blue sky, if you will. That's there. I can look at it in some ways, but I'm just going to put this caveat first is that there are boards that presidents report to, um, there are legislatures that presidents have to work with, and there is funding that absolutely matters to get get money uh, to be able to use those institutions. But outside of those factors, doing things that make sense for students is, is priority one. Uh, One of the things that I I would say that I absolutely, no matter where I would end up being a president at, um, is that all things that are focused on what, all things that we're doing would be focused on student success. That is priority one. I'm also incredibly fortunate to work at an institution that every single time we talk about the three goals that are priorities on our institution, number one is it starts with student success, right? And there's so many avenues of that. Student success in the classroom, student success outside the classroom student success in, in, in the learning environment um, and, and what we're able to provide uh, from advising um, through faculty involvement, through what they're doing in their residence halls. Um, here at UCA, we have residential colleges. So that learning is even within the, the the living environment. And so everything is focused on student success. Pie in the sky, that is that is number one. And I think there's a very easy way to live that within what you're doing and in, 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 in the meetings that you're in. And so many of us are in those meetings and we can ask those questions when we're talking about policy and procedure and we're able to say, OK, this is a good conversation. What does this do for students? How is this helping students? And, and I think that that's the, the, the real the real start of any conversation. So without going into like I don't, I can answer this question over 30 minutes, Colm, I think, but without going into it more than that. I really think that when you put students first in the work that you're doing, um, then everything else is a little easier uh, because it gets back to Matt's question when he's talking about, um, you know, for those people that maybe are in a funk within the profession or, or feel conflicted from time to time. If they can at least see, even in that role, that the university is doing what's best for students, makes that part of the job better. It makes it easier for the students to see that. It makes it easier for the faculty to know that when they're working with a student, that no matter what they're doing, they're going to be supported as long as they're doing it for students. Um, That philosophy in itself and that approach to to the work that you're doing on a college campus, um, I really think can get you far.
0: We're going to give you an easy one.
4: Okay. I I don't know that I believe you yet. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) It will be, I promise. Meta majors. So you're part of the transition for meta majors for all incoming students at UCA. So, can you talk about what are meta majors? What was the decision to go this route? And how's it been going so far?
4: Yeah, so um, I would say we're early in the process. Um, but the, the thought behind it was um, we have a large number of uh, students, like most of our campuses do, that come in as uh, undeclared or exploratory students. And then we also have a large portion of our students that come in and will eventually change their major. Um, and so what we did when we looked at this is we looked at all of the majors that were listed on our campus and we did individual tracking over years, periods of time and looked to see where students were transferring. And so could we find similarities that were there? And we did. And we were able to break that into um, seven pods, essentially seven meta-majors um, of certain subjects um, that really a student could come in and they can major in anything in that area that meta major. and if they transfer or if they change majors excuse me, uh, then you know they can really look at that and say, okay, well there's not really much change in the curriculum if you're doing that um, so everything should work out fine and, and we also were able to, to do some enhancing um, to our freshman uh, course our, our future freshman coursework through that as well. So it, it's very early on in that process. And so we're seeing students that are just now starting to come in um, with meta majors as an option. As a matter of fact, for this class that just came through, the fall 20, or fall 20 course, uh, that was the first time it was in our view book. And so we're early on in that implementation, um, but that's the plan. Um, and people have asked, does that eliminate the undeclared student? And, and I said, I don't know that it eliminates the undeclared student, but I think it provides them a home a little, little quicker in the process. And, and I think that's that's good and healthy. If you don't have appropriate college programming for your exploratory students, I think that, that they can really feel a little isolated. And so the meta-majors really does build them into one of the academic colleges uh, a little sooner in the process. Uh, I will say that we've leaned pretty heavily on the research um, that Complete College America puts out from that, that process. And, and that was a big reason for the transition, too, because aspects of things that they do um, 15 to finish... Uh, transitional courses and, and not necessarily necessarily developmental or remedial education, um, and then meta majors um, are big things that are on their platform and, and helping students graduate quicker. And uh, the data provide behind that uh, definitely provides folks with a blueprint for how to implement. So uh, we've been pretty happy with where we're at, but we know we've got some work to do still as we have more students coming in.
0: So in a way, it kind of gives them like this intentional exploration with their classes, and hopefully not. Take classes that will just end up as counting as electives.
4: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And Kevin, Matt mentioned
1: it in your in your bio, and and you um, mentioned it yourself earlier. So just kind of to come back to being on the NACADA board of directors, um, and I suppose just in terms of what experience was like? Um, you know, Matt and I have talked to, to people before, but it's probably been a, a little while. So it might be interesting for listeners to hear just a little bit about your experience.
4: So so this, this may be like the most interesting part of the, the conversation to some folks. Um, when you think about Nakata experience, there are things that are the things I love the most, right? Like, I mean, I, I could talk to talk about Nakata in such ways that it's just, it, Nakata family is not just a hashtag, right? Like it, it's real. Um, uh, today, being able to send out messages to, to Nakata friends and family to say, proud of you for running for office. Um, good luck on your elections. Um, you would have my vote if I could vote for you or you'll have my vote. Those type of things is just a fantastic thing. And so when I look at so much Nakata experience, um, there are things that uh, I, I have so many stories I can tell and, and just say, it, it, wonderful experiences. Um, And my entire career, uh, I have run for offices and uh, very rarely won. And so I I will say that just point blank. I ran for an advising uh, uh, community um, very early on and didn't win, Um, ran for uh, board uh, a couple times and did not win. And uh, then uh, somebody stepped away from the board and I won a runoff election to put me on for a year. And uh, I will say that you think that you want to go someplace. You think that you want to get to this position and where you're going uh, within an organization. And sometimes you get there and you're like, oh, no, I like all the other stuff better. And <laughs> so, so I, I appreciate the opportunity to be, have been on the board for a year's period of time. Um, I absolutely love the people I work with. Some of uh, my, my, my greatest friends and family and colleagues within the organization uh, Aaron, Justina, Karen, uh, Cecilia, Olivares—you uh, know, you name them. Brody Brochures, They like they're—they're they're my folks. Um, and I'm—I'm going to leave somebody off, and they're going to be mad at me about that later on when they're listening. But the board is most certainly not for me. I won't be running again. So for anybody that didn't vote for me previously, thank you, thank you for not voting for me, because it's just one of these things that, from an experience standpoint, I love so many other things about my Nakata experience. I am often tweeting about um, leadership is in all shapes and sizes. And I think that sometimes we get into our mind that we have to be in these positions that are the top positions in order to make an impact. And that's just not the case. There are presenters when we go to conferences and we're looking through the, 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 the conference guides that we, we look at and we say, oh, I know they're great. I'm going to that session. That person is impacting 50 to 100 people in every session. I've mentioned that I absolutely love my ELP experience. I felt like I did more in my ELP experience and gained more from that 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 work and that time with my ELP mentee than I did from my time on the board. Hands down, it's just it, that that experience was different. Putting on an annual conference, um, and, you know, in St. Louis and being the chair of that, uh, I am going to have a relationship with those people from the, the that annual conference committee that will last forever until until we are out of higher education and we'll still probably hang out in post-retirement, right? Like those people, we blood, sweat and tears to put on a good conference in St. Louis for folks. And so those experiences are so standout to me that when I look at my board experience, it's like, I'm glad I got it. I'm glad that I know now that I don't want to be the president of Nakata. Uh, I'm glad now that I, I know that I don't necessarily want to be on the board again uh, because people are like, oh, that's the next step. And sometimes the next step isn't the step that's right for you. And sometimes the losing an election is trying to show you that. Uh, and, and and so I would say, from the board standpoint of things, uh, we have some wonderful, caring individuals that are doing wonderful things uh, for the best of the organization. The work that's being done right now um, with uh, inclusion and equity and uh, within NACADA is fantastic work. Um, I often um, one of my former colleagues, Jessica Staten, is the co-chair of that 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 that. Uh, Commission, and so I'm, I have that opportunity to talk to her often about how things are going. I love the steps that we're taking as an organization, but I can also say, from a board perspective, there are people that need to be at that table, and I am not one of them. <laughs> I know that's not that's not the answer that you were expecting, Column. I, I absolutely,
1: but it's it's a fascinating answer, um, and and it's it's really honest and it's really insightful, and I think that that is it's it's reflective and, and it's food for thought for people out there. And I, I think that's what our aim has always been with this podcast yeah. is to, is to share stories. And yes, we bring, we, you know, we bring people on and we, we celebrate the work that they do because, you know, across the board, they do great work and you do great work. And it's just, I thought I knew asking it, I didn't know that had been your experience, but I knew we'd get something from you, a nugget, <laughs> that there'd, there'd be a takeaway and there would be a, a reflection within it. Well,
4: and, I I'm not, I don't know his last name. I'm sorry, I really don't, but he's been on your podcast a couple of times. Ryan from Texas Tech. Is Ryan, what's his last name? Shuckle. Shuckle? Yep. Yeah, so Ryan Shuckle from Texas Tech is absolutely one of the most progressive Nakata leaders there are. And uh, I, I saw that he's running for office. I think that Ryan is fascinating. He's a wonderful Twitter follow. He's also wonderful on the podcast in a pre- previous episode. Um, I've been to his sessions he's one of these people that when I go to a conference, I make sure for sure I know where Ryan is presenting because I know I'm going to gain something from that session. Ryan is an incredible Nakata leader that until he wins an election, I don't know that he's ever held a Nakata position. Um, And and I would just say that that, that's just stand out. I think of people like Sarah Howard. Sarah Howard is on that. She's at Ohio State. Um, I will say that I've leaned on Sarah, Sarah several times because she's a technology expert. And she does wonderful sessions. She's been super involved in the advising communities, especially with technology. But whenever all of this was happening with COVID and the pandemic, Sarah was already working remotely um, in Michigan as as an employee of Ohio State. And so when people were saying, well, how do you do these things? How do you work this way? Sarah was somebody that absolutely was all of a sudden this leader that didn't have a position within the association but is one of those people that is a go-to because of the knowledge that she has and the things that she's able to, to provide um, to help people be better at their jobs. It's those people that I look at and I'm just like, yes, there's this aspiration. And, and you'll hear it at, at, at annual conferences where they're like, get involved, run for office. Yes, do that, right? Because that's great. There's wonderful offices that I've, that I've had. But also get involved and present because the, the things that we're doing on our campus, we don't learn about them if you don't share them. That, you know we can't get better as a profession if you're not sharing them through presentations or through writing uh, for the Nakata journal or for the academic advising today, whatever it might be, um, there's just so many so much potential um, in leadership and people get focused on the positions. and I think the positions matter. Don't get me wrong. There, there's wonderful work that's happening there. But the things outside of that, wow, the impact that you can have are just incredible. And I think people like Ryan and Sarah Howard are, are just great examples of, of that occurring.
0: Uh, Shout out to Ryan and Sarah. And also thanks to you for being on this podcast and sharing with us all these little bit of nuggets of information and your experience. And this has been great. And I think we're going to have you on for sure. We have to have you on for a future podcast episode. And Braden, if you're listening, your father did fantastic on this interview. And of course, he will be back in the future. But Kevin, thank you so much. And if any listeners have any questions, how can they reach you?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I will say the best way is probably, I'm a social media person uh, with regard to Twitter. So I-, I will be more likely to respond um, through Twitter. Uh, my-, my handle for Twitter is at uh, Thomas 20 um, but anybody can obviously email me at um, Thomas at uca.edu. Glad to connect. Um, I think one of the great things of, uh, of the Nakata world and Nakata community is that I learn as much from folks outside of conference experiences I do from inside conference experience. And sometimes that's connecting uh, via social media and sometimes that's connecting via phone calls or or these opportunities like that we've been able to have with virtual world that we live in these days. So glad to do it.
1: Really enjoyed speaking with Kevin. In fairness, I always do, because he has such valuable knowledge and insights to share, and he's always generous with his time. Coming up next is our interview with Jennifer Aaron from San Francisco State University.
0: Jennifer Arne is the author of the poetry book, Ways We Hold, and the chat book, The Roots of Desire, and her essays and poems have been published in both the U.S. and Europe. She has written poetry segments for television and radio and did French to English translations for the official website that accompanied the Hollywood film, The Adventures of Tintin. Arn's awards include numerous literary prizes, a PEN Writers Fund Grant, a Poet and writers, writers on Site residency, two 2019 Advising Awards from NACADA, and a 2015 Distinguished Faculty Award from San Francisco State University, where she has taught for the English department and also has served as an academic advisor. Currently, she teaches a writing and research course for its Child and Adolescent Development Department. Jennifer, how are you?
5: Thank you so, so much
1: for this invitation. I'm grateful to both of you. Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. We are delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you. One of the things that we start our our interviews with is to give the listeners an opportunity to, to get to know you a little bit better and maybe if you can talk to us about, you know, your route into higher education and and how you came to to be in the position that you're in now, Jennifer.
5: That's you. You raise some really good points with that question. I always loved being a student. I always loved it, learning and um, that that information that comes from from mentors and peers. You know, the faculty, the staff. So it seemed natural to go into the other side of being a student, <laughs> which is to work in, in education. Uh, I'm fortunate to you that education was something my family always valued. Um, so it, it, it just was a, a natural step. And because I love being a student, teaching seemed the natural aspect to, to then enter into as a field. So for years, exactly as you, you mentioned, I worked for our English department at San Francisco State University, Loved working with my students in the classroom. And during office hours, so many of them began to talk about personal matters. In other words, issues that had really nothing to do with course assignments. They would come to talk about this essay or write that assignment. But then there were financial issues that they raised, personal concerns. And often they would talk to me about their struggles in other courses, too, and they, they would actually bring me papers from other classes. They had trouble interpreting assignment guidelines and such. And I found that I liked so much that one-on-one, work, uh, that one-on-one work with our students, that when an opportunity arose on the campus for the possibility of entering into academic advising, I thought, you know, I've wondered about that for a long time. I think I would really love it. And so I took what was really kind of a leap of faith because it it was a big switch nonetheless. And I had a, I was a lecturer for the department, but it was a a very secure lectureship. So it really was a a leap to go from that into another related, but nonetheless, another field. And uh, yes, it it was the right move. I I did love it. So that was very nice. It was all the one-on-one work and it was a beautiful opportunity to learn more than I had known as a lecturer in terms of how the campus works, right? What what all advisors work with, campus policies and procedures, petitions, you know, much more beyond a much wider range and scope than what for that the the tenured faculty tend to be familiar with these aspects. Uh, I learned much more about how the campus works, its sort of internal workings. And it was wonderful because I felt that I could help students on many, many, many fronts, you know, as as all advisors do, not just only me, of course, as all advisors do. So it's been lovely work. And then an opportunity just arose to do similar work in a teaching capacity again. Advisors also teach, right? But again, more one-on-one workshops, you know, in a classroom setting with our child and adolescent uh, development department. And it's just a very lovely pairing of kind of the dual backgrounds of faculty and advising. It's working with students who are interested in creating community-based change for children and youth and families. Many of them want to become teachers themselves or school counselors, for instance. So like advisors, right? These are caring souls, service-oriented students. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to to working with them as well and bringing in those dual backgrounds for that position of counseling and teaching.
0: Wow. And it seems like every position that you've had at San Francisco State has been helping someone, you know, and whether it's in a classroom environment or a one-on-one environment. Can you talk about when you transitioned over from faculty to being an academic advisor, professional advisor, how was that transition for you? Did you find that what you have learned, the skills that you've had as faculty helped with that transition to being an academic advisor?
5: Without question, absolutely. And I'm actually writing now an article about the importance of much more communication, more meetings between not that we're not all inundated with meetings, I know, sorry, but more, more of a bridge between academic advisors and the faculty. Because the faculty too are, are immersed in academic advising, even if it's largely uh, related to the department and the department's offerings and the path forward for students in that, that chosen field. And it's been very useful as an advisor to have that background in the dynamics of the classroom. And it also has led me to constantly consult with, constantly maybe it's a bit, but to often consult when needed with faculty colleagues. What we see as advisors is the one-on-one, right? We have the the luxury of those one-on-one conversations with students to get to know them personally in a sense and to really hear in that context their their concerns, their sources of pride, right, whatever the the topic may be that students present, right, that they bring to us. And as faculty, what we see are uh, the behaviors, for example, of students, but one-on-one as well, but largely in the classroom. So we might, for instance, have a student who comes and and, and has concern about the class and, and feels that they're doing all that they can. And then sometimes, for example, you might talk to the professor of that class and find out, well, the student always comes late, you know, or, or for, for reasons within their control, for instance, or um, texts a lot in class or, you know, things that a student may not view yet as, as really critical. But but that are critical for the classroom and also for, frankly, for professional success beyond the class. Because when we talk about student success, we want to think beyond graduation, too. So to have that dual background has been very useful. And to work with the faculty is critical in being able to have this sort of two-pronged approach to help students succeed, right? Because advisors are privy to certain information and observations and so to the faculty. So together... This is just a dream team on behalf of student advocacy, right, student success and for student advocacy. So working together more for students is just the way forward. I know that that varies from one campus to the next. Some campuses, those exchanges happen often. Other campuses, not so much. And for those exchanges to happen often, they need to be institutionalized because otherwise for individuals to say, hey, can we arrange a meeting oh my God, (laughs) everybody's inundated, right? (laughs) So there has to be something like where it counts for service, for example, for the faculty and where staff also get acknowledged for taking that extra step for instance of their annual evaluations. And it really counts. And especially, for example, at delicate times like these, and and we, we both happen to work in the CSU system where there are budget issues now. It's important to get that that acknowledgement for those extra steps, and all all advisors and all faculty should be interested in doing that. And what's really encouraging is when I speak with advising colleagues and faculty colleagues, everybody wants that. Everybody wants that, but everybody's too busy to make that happen. So it really does need to be from on high, institutionalized, you know, to count as committee work as service, for example, so that we can. Set time aside for it and and have that be again acknowledged, recognized.
1: Yeah, thank you for for sharing the the kind of dual insights there, and your your skills and talents uh, both in terms of teaching and in terms of advising have been recognised with uh, excellence awards, as, as Matt mentioned in the the bio. Maybe you could tell us uh, a, a little bit about those, and also I suppose um, in terms the uh, the advising awards um, were from NACADA. How how did you first come come across NACADA? And um, get involved with the the organization.
5: Oh, I'm very grateful to have been introduced to Nakata by uh, a couple of administrators on my campus who went out of their way to ensure that that advisors have membership or have the option for membership in Nakata, could receive the Nakata journals. And I love Nakata. It's wonderful that administrators connected to advising. Also attend conferences and webinars. Nakata, I'm not sure if this is quite, I guess I'm more embarrassed to talk about awards. <laughs> As I'm not quite sure if I'm answering your question directly, but, you know, awards come just from listening to students. You know, it's just a matter of of listening to them and, and when they, they will tell us what they want, they do. And we find ways to meet that. And I think it's important for all students to know that um, whether it's in the classroom or whether it's. In a, an advising session, there is always a way forward. I've never seen any situation too dire or too complex that doesn't have a path to success, right? In other words, it frees the students, it lifts students out of that that those difficult conditions. So that's that's just honestly what what that's about. Uh, and I'm grateful to. I know it's not too glossing over, but I don't know it's embarrassing. But but um, you know, I'm grateful to Nakada as as other. Advisors, I'm sure, are as well, of course, for those opportunities. And I love that Nakata is so student-centered. There's always a push-pull for advisors, for faculty, for administrators, a push-pull between the goals of the institution and the goals of the student. And I think that it's important that Nakata continue to be focused on student goals and what, what advances those. And honestly, when we're focused on student goals, those do align or should align with the goals of the institution as well. So um, wonderful for Nakada. I'm not sure if I've completely answered your question. I think
1: you, you have. You've done a, you've done a really <laughs> okay. lovely job. Uh, it, I think just hearing that. <laughs> You can hear within within you and within the answer how central students
5: are to your approach. It's it's the job description. I mean, anyway, and it's why anybody goes into this work. I I would hope, right? You know, one something too about Nakata is I've met the nicest people. Advisors are just really nice. You know, I was so impressed by that. These are such good-hearted people, and again, sort of the the common bond, right, between advisors and teachers is we're the ones who are working on the front lines with students. So we know directly what students need and um, throwing this in perhaps for no particular (laughs) reason, except that to to bring administrators also more into the fold, because we we all are interested in student success. And I think would be great to have those perspectives perhaps align a bit more at times by my my own view is that every administrator should also at some point teach or else be immersed in advising, but should also be doing some work on on, again the front lines with students, just just to really know to 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 have that proximity to what students say directly. Yeah. Well I
0: guess along with that, is there anything that you feel like your institution is doing right with with bringing everyone together? And if you had a wish list, is there anything else you would add to that to help administrators, professional advisors, faculty advisors, just everyone be able to assist students?
5: Yes. The advising center where I worked until just a few days ago, (laughs) Um, (laughs) the, the dean who was behind its founding created a faculty advisory board. And twice a semester, Seven faculty members, and it's a combination of tenure track and lectures, meet with advisors, the, the the advisors of that center. It's been a wonderful way to make sure really that everyone is on the same page. So so faculty get to learn from advisors, advisors learn from faculty. It's it's always a two-way street, which should be obvious to anybody, right, who who works in, in any field really. So it's been wonderful too, and I know that faculty colleagues have also said that then they felt that administrators were really listening to the perspective of both both cohorts faculty and, and advisors advisors faculty that is something i would love to see every advising center have i think every advising center should have a faculty advisory board for faculty that counts as service for staff I think we have to do something <laughs> to have an account again. Maybe, maybe it could be that staff also give presentations at some of these. But there, it, it's just a win-win for everyone involved, you know. And it, it strengthens the the back and forth and the natural the naturalness of exchanges between faculty and staff. You can tell that that's my, my my primary issue right now. So that's something that's happened on my campus with one advising center. Would love to see that for advising centers everywhere, you know, across the land, right? Every every place I think should have that. Yeah,
1: I think that that sort of knowledge exchange is is so valuable right across higher ed for, for, for advisors, for faculties, but right throughout, um, you know, di- different aspects of, of higher ed and even the knowledge exchange that we have between advisors and, and students and faculty and, and students, I think, has a, an important role to, to play in, in learning. Um, Jennifer I I one of the things that that struck me as I um, was kind of um preparing for the interview was um I know you spent a little bit of time in Europe. Um I I'm, I'm wondering if you could uh, I suppose as somebody based uh, you know across the Atlantic could you talk a little bit more about that?
5: Yes, it's I would say that that experience has reinforced a, a love that I had already which is for international cultures, I've, I work a lot with international students. I'm a strong advocate for the advantage of speaking other languages or taking other opportunities such as study abroad. They are invaluable. You know, something that a one of my writing professors has said once, which really applies to being overseas as well, is it and apply to exchange students, international students is that when you are on your own, you know, it came up in the course of this, in the context of this writing classes, uh, being in a, in a writing class like that, it throws you back on your own resources. Travel, you know, it, it opens you up. It's so important now, you know, we're very globally oriented. We, we must be, we are sometimes, you know, we, we, Everybody benefits from that that cross-cultural exchange. And, you know, this idea of more than the sum of its parts, hearing about the way things happen in other societies, other cultures, we talk about diversity in all kinds of ways. And added to that is diversity of background internationally. And that leads also to diversity of of thought, diversity of approach. So I, I love that work. When when international students come to my office, I I feel that I learn as much from them often as they do from me. Customs, cultures, there's often a very different sense of, of time right, depending on students from different cultures, right, <laughs> different, okay, <laughs> the person from Ireland is like, yes, <laughs> right, <laughs> and, and I will say that I'm I'm originally from New York, which has an even more different sense of time, right, you, if you've heard the phrase, in New York minute, it's like, okay, <laughs> we're on, we're off, you know, <laughs> and sometimes it's not always the, the case. Um, our international students have that extra challenge of adapting to the way things work at a U.S. institution, different policies, different approaches, different expectations for the classroom, different ideas of how to create assignments, different ideas of withdrawal policies and such. They need, I would say, often extra assistance in adapting to a new university system. And it's just it's always a joy. It's always a joy. And in my classes, when I've had international students uh, among uh, domestic students, you know that, right? It's, it's always a very good exchange of ideas. So yes, we, we, it's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's a lovely thing. It's opened me also, I don't know if this is too far afield from the question, but certainly in terms of literature as well, it's led me to teach uh, in a way that that helps our students who are bilingual, for example, to introduce assignments that have an element of translation you know, so that they get to bring in their own their their native tongues as well, and I think what's happened is that our international students that I work with they they understand that there's a respect and a, a tolerance as for as for all our students, but they, they feel they tend to feel sort of safe right away or like they they've landed well, you know, um, and and I mean I don't mean to say as opposed to our, our, our local students, right? Everyone should have that that feeling going to see an advisor. Yeah, it's just been so nice to be able to help our international students also integrate into the new system and show them the ropes. So, yeah, i participate that often in international student orientations and a, a panel about how to help students succeed at, at San Francisco State. It's, it's vital work.
0: And it almost seems like as an advisor or even when you were teaching, with, with a lot of those students like you help them find their voice whether it's through their writing or helping them navigate the system now speaking of abroad you attended the nakata international conference in belgium and you actually also got to present there and, and you've also attended other conferences you know whether it's a regional level annual level california collaborative conference various conferences Was there anything that was special or different about attending, like, the international conference? And then also, what was the topic that you presented on?
5: Well, you'll never guess. It was about creating a bridge between staff and faculty. (laughs) Oh, no, really? Something completely (laughs) different. (laughs) Yes. Um, Two things were wonderful about that, more than two, really. But but one was getting to see who from the States, Matt... (laughs) Also ventured to to Belgium. In this case, it was so wonderful to see you there. You were so sweet to to turn up. Thank you so much. um I mean, I mean to come and to to be there for your own presentations, but also come and and sort of go out of your way to find me was just so so generous of you. And what was wonderful was that I got to hear the international perspective on this same topic. How are how are how are campuses abroad dealing with this issue of creating more communication between academic advisors and faculty? And some campuses internationally are already creating that. One campus told me that they have meetings often with faculty. That's just part of their work. And other campuses internationally were having the same disconnect between those two groups. So it that told me that it's not just national; it's not just a U.S. issue. So that was very interesting. It was great too because um, it's just—it's such a pleasure. There's something about meeting people from other countries that is so exciting. Um, one one feels that one will be enriched by the very encounter, and that that does happen. I will say that it also enabled me. You, you mentioned something about. Um, Tintin and, and this this work I've done apart from either teaching or advising for uh, the comic book character and uh, that company is based in Belgium so it also allowed me to to reconnect with, with people connected to Tintin in Belgium which was also lovely and continue that, that connection um, and one of the people at the conference also knew about Tintin <laughs> So that was great. Somebody from Japan who showed me on her phone, she had pictures of Tintin. It was really, it was really fun. And it's just, it's just such a pleasure to be immersed in that and to get out of one's own um, experiences. And you know, advising, teaching, these require empathy to do them well. And when we meet other people, and especially the more far afield, it's a chance to, to as much as one can vicariously be in somebody else's shoes hear another perspective. And we always benefit from that. And it's the, the concretization, the realization of what we talk about. It's like, yes, it's important to be out and listen to others. And that that takes it out of the abstract and reifies it, you know, makes it real to be right there. And okay, you know, now now we're not just talking we're we're doing. So it's, it's, a grand experience. It was wonderful to be there. Just wonderful. Yes. Did, did, did you enjoy it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Wow. I loved it. And I just remember, because I don't think we had told each other that we were going to be at that conference. So I remember when I was looking at the schedule and, or the program, and I was kind of going through, okay, you know, like, like anyone does, which, which sessions am I going to go to? And I saw yours and, and I was like, Jennifer, oh, my good, this is great. <laughs> and I want to say yours was after it might have been after lunch because I because here's a funny story. So I, I go because I was like, I'm going to go and and surprise Jennifer and tell her congrats. So I, I go to the room early and there's no one else in the room. And so I'm just literally just standing in this lecture hall, just waiting And George Steele, who we interviewed a couple of months ago, like walks in because he had just presented there and was forgot. I think he forgot his flash drive or something. So he just looks at me and I'm like, oh, good. He's probably like, why is this random person just standing here? But it it was so great, you know, because I know we've known each other for a few years. So I've been able to kind of watch, you know, your progress and be able to see you at these conferences and not to see you present like that was an amazing feeling.
5: Well, I, I certainly owe much of that to, to you because you were one of my first contacts at Nakata, and your support throughout has been grateful, as I say, really indebted to you for it. You've been a wonderful supporter, and to see you turn up at that conference was like, Matt, <laughs> what you here? <laughs> you know, it was great. It was just, it was just wonderful. Thank you. It was so nice to feel that there was, you know, we, we meet people, we meet new people, you know, but there was already an ally, so to speak, at the conference, a friend, you know, familiar face. And that also was terrific. <laughs> thank you so much. No,
0: nope, no problem. I appreciate it. No, yeah. It goes both ways. So you've been a great supporter myself as well. So thank you.
5: Love, love seeing what you've been doing.
0: The podcast, the scholarship
5: committees. I mean, it's just been terrific to behold, really.
0: Well, it's
1: uh, it's interesting to to hear you, I suppose, mention Tintin because Tintin is is very popular in in Ireland. And uh, if uh, if it wasn't nailed to the wall, I'd show you um, when I left one of my previous jobs, they gave me some Tintin artwork. Um, it's, It's it's it's. um, it's actually a, a drawing of uh, Tintin in Ireland. But um, the other thing that struck me uh, that's also very popular that you have an interest in, given that you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, areas of interest outside higher ed, is poetry, obviously, uh, you know, in uh, enorm- uh, Ireland, uh, well known for its poetry and you are a published poet. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about, I suppose, your your interest in, in poetry and, um, you you know a, a little more around that
0: yes
5: it it relates in its way to what we were saying about international encounters and uh you know anyone who goes into poetry loves language it's the sound the 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 intrigue of being able to say something important in just a very few words in very spare terms if need be um you know, or you think about even Romeo and Juliet, you know, Juliet is the sun, Romeo says at one point, Juliet is the sun, right? But soft, but light through yonder window breaks, it is the east, and Juliet is the sun. And Juliet is the sun conveys so much in four words. We know so much about Juliet and what she means to him, for instance. So poetry in particular is the need for every word to earn its keep, right? And it's a very important, what I love about poetry art, it, it's all those things. And also it relates to music and certainly Seamus Heaney and other poets, right? They've got an ear for music. It's the rhythm of it as well. And it's very pleasing to the ear. I found it very useful for students, not only in the classroom, but in fact, in advising because those petitions, all those petitions we help so many students with, most of them have a written component. And so I've I've brought in my background in writing to help students with those written statements. And it turns into not only an advising session, but frankly, a writing lesson, <laughs> which tends to help them with their other assignments by by extension, because right, it's it's humanistic expression, right? It's it's service, but to language. And um what you'd mentioned too about helping students find voice, it it's it's all of that. So there's there's it will sound funny to say, but there's also a physical pleasure in poetry based on sound play, rhyme, rhythm, right? And to be able to impart that love of language to students is, is a joy because language deserves that attention. And it doesn't matter what field students will enter, language is the vehicle through which they will realize those goals. Everything must be expressed in, in language, whether spoken or written. it's it's right it's vital that they be so to speak well versed in, in no pun intended but in retrospect perhaps but, you know they need to be well well versed in language and there there it is.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's it's great that with anything there's always you can always find a connection to it and in this case bringing everything to academic advising. So I know one of the other things that you're passionate about is student scholarships. How do you define scholarships and how have you seen that benefit students?
5: It means to really have in turn an opportunity to do well in in terms of academic achievement. The less the students need to work, right, concurrent with their studies, because so many, it varies, I know, from one school to the next, certainly in the CSU, in community colleges as well. So many of our students hold one job, two jobs, three jobs even concurrent with their studies. I can tell you how so many of my students are now working for DoorDash, Uber Eats, you know, and, and I, during these pandemic times, one, one worries about them, too. You know, we want to protect our students. What scholarships do, right, twofold, certainly, of course, the financial aspect. And so when students need to work or can work fewer hours or perhaps no hours concurrent with their studies, they can focus more on their coursework. That's very important in terms of equity, right? We talk about equity, closing the achievement gap. Families with greater resources often are in a position that allows their children not to have to work. While they're going to school. So, I'd like to see that opportunity for all our students that if they work, it's because they choose to, because it advances them in their field of choice, not because they need to to support themselves. It alleviates then a financial burden for families as well. If families are, are helping to foot the bill for tuition, which is frequently the case, it also allows students to build themselves professionally, right? Build their resumes. Um, and even Even to garner stronger letters of recommendation, perhaps, and job leads from faculty, if they then are permitted to focus just on their studies, if they can dedicate themselves to a course because they're not distracted with needing to prioritize a job. Yes. In addition, you know, it it relates directly to retention, vitally, because students then have the opportunity, if they want it, to participate more in the campus community. To seek advising on campus where it's voluntary, to to explore research and uh, creative activity opportunities through a campus, to join student clubs and organizations, for instance, to attend faculty office hours if they're not uh, in need of setting that time aside to to get to work. Right, um, attendance tends to be very badly affected too if a student then is. The boss calls them in to to substitute for somebody to do an extra shift, and the student says yes because they need the money and they don't want to say no to the the boss. So that that can affect attendance as well. So these scholarships are are vital for that too, uh, for allowing students to feel really part of the academic community, focus on their studies. On my campus, there's even one scholarship Which is specifically for students who have not earned more than a 2.5, because the donor of those funds felt that if he had not had to work while he was a student, he would have performed better academically. And it is true, you see that no shock, right? Once students have have that money, they their grades improve. You know, I would say too that we talk often in advising about students with mental health issues. And it is um it is very important and what i've seen which i think won't surprise anyone is that when students have more money that can lead to better living conditions right can alleviate basic food issues a lot of the or basic needs issues a lot of that anxiety and depression disappear and i think that i'm not sure what's happened i when i was a student i just want to say that I never heard this discussion of students presenting with mental health issues. They are real. They're there. But often I think that because students hear this language, I think that they're often incorporating that. And in fact, it's externally induced. Sometimes it is internal. And there are times when counseling is needed and medication is needed. Certainly, often I see working directly with students that once a scholarship appears, oh, my God, it's like... A lot of the weight of the world is lifted from their shoulders all of a sudden, their tuition is covered. they don 't have to worry. they feel more autonomous. you know they they have something in their record that for future employers also shows a student 's promise for future. so it serves them in in all these ways so I, I am yes, a big, big fan of scholarships, absolutely.
1: Jennifer, I suppose we're recording this um, just to, to, as we move towards the end of January. And I'm, I'm conscious that, as you, you've mentioned, you're already, you're stepping into a new role. But um, as we are in this this new year, I'm, I'm um, you know, I, I, I love your attitude. So I'm wondering, are, are there any um, particular um, goals or, or hopes that you have for the rest of, of 2021?
5: my My goal is as I've had a little time to reflect on that now, is to see if I can find a balance between um the academic work that we do and and making time to write. Um, I have various a couple of book projects and an article mentioned earlier that I'm hoping to advance now, so it'd be lovely to have that time and find that that balance you know this work life balance. Some countries do a much better job of that. <laughs> the U.S. is not one of them, but hoping to find that—that that is one thing I certainly know from time spent abroad. Um, and maybe to develop new courses, I think, in future, and see about ways to still connect that to to advising. Those would be my my goals.
0: Well, Jennifer, I hope you have a wonderful 2021. We appreciate you being on the podcast and. I know when we met, it was at the California Collaborative Conference and at one of those conferences at the Riverside Conference in 2018, I remember you came up to the table and you were telling me how wonderful of experience you were having at the conference and then you uh, left to go to another session and Chris Linfelt was right next to me and when he had left, he was like, she's, you know, she seems so happy. I think it's just how she goes about the world and takes in everything. It, it's kind of like this positivity and looks at the bright side of everything. And I said, then that's that's Jennifer. And you know, if she's smiling, anyone she's talking to, it makes you want to smile too. So I definitely appreciate getting to know you and your friendship, and I look forward to seeing continued all the great things that you're going to be doing. What
5: a what a lovely comment! Thank you. My gosh. You know, even at the worst of times, there's still some things to smile about. And humor is just I don't know. It's just just the approach that somehow I don't know, things make me laugh a lot. I don't know what to say. So, you know, people are funny and witty, and I mean you two have been brilliant. So how could I not be smiling laughing in this interview? It's it's you two. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Jennifer, for being part of the podcast. Honestly, it's been a joy getting to witness how much you do in the academic advising community and being a colleague and also a friend. If you wish to contact Jennifer, you can reach her at jarin, that's J-A-R-I-N, at S-F-S-U E-D-U. And we are at the end. Thank you, as always, for joining us. If you don't already, subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. We'll be back for episode 30. Take care, advising family. And as always, keep advising.